Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. <clears throat> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Last Sunday, we launched the big theme for this year at Churchill Anglican. The theme is God's transforming grace. And that grace will be our theme, our focus and delight for 2022. And here in January, we feature an introductory four-part series entitled Grace Transforms, which will unpack verse by verse just one sentence from Paul's letter to Titus. You heard it a moment ago. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I know actually that's two sentences in the NIV I just read, but in Paul's Greek it's only one. More literally, verse 12 should read, teaching us to say no, as in, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, teaching us to say no and so forth. I'm not criticising the NIV, just explaining. Well, today, last week it was verse 11, this week it's verse 12. A brief reprise. Last week we learnt that although the word grace is actually an ordinary word, uh, although it, it, it has no theological meaning in itself, just as a word, and it's an ordinary word that means gift, or the generosity that gives a gift, or the thanks that follows a gift. It could have a number of ranges of meaning. No, that's an ordinary word. The grace of God is something extraordinary. When we're talking about the grace of God, we're talking about what Paul in another letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, describes as, and I quote, the grace of God which has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the extraordinary thing about God's grace which we discovered last Sunday was this. The grace of God which has appeared is not discriminating. That is, it does not take into account the worthiness of the recipient. It's a gift which is non-congruent, that is, not appropriate to the person receiving it. The standing of recipients cuts no ice with God. For as Titus 2.11 teaches us, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, all humans. But we also learnt that uh, although we may take that truth for granted, in Paul's day, it was quite radical and even subversive. As John Barclay of Durham University, who has done, by the way, major research into the meaning of grace in the writings of Paul, as he writes, and this is the first of the two quotes from Barclay on page two, I quote, although Christian theologians and modern dictionaries regard it as self-evident that grace means a benefit to the unworthy, in the ancient terms, this was a striking and theologically dangerous construal of the concept, end of quote. It was theologically dangerous because in antiquity, the good gift was normally given according to some criteria of worth. And this was thought to be true of the gods or God. 
God would hardly waste gifts on the unfitting or confuse the moral and social order by giving it to unworthy recipients. But the gospel turned that on its head. The gospel turns that on its head. It's rather interesting, I noticed, that seeing something in its original context can take something that we attempt to take for granted, sort of, oh, yeah, we know that, as rather fresh and new again. Although, as I did say last week, although we, it's a paradox here, we take God's indiscriminate grace for granted, at the same time, deep down, many of us don't even believe, don't believe it. At the same time, we're caught in a kind of paradox of not really trusting in the free grace of God, at the same time claiming it's obvious. Well, today, uh, something similar, only this time slightly in reverse. The next step would be 1 Titus, sorry, Titus 2, verse 12. In context, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God might be given without regard for worth or the value but it's given in order to transform those who receive it. It might be given without regard for worth, but it's given in order to change those who've received it. As verse 12 puts it, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God is instructive. It, it teaches that the believer to renounce certain things and live a different kind of life. Back to that in just a moment. Can I first just make a notice, a more general point about God's grace that comes from this text? It's not only given to the unworthy, but it changes those who receive it to become the kind of people the Lord wants as his own. In the words of the title of our series, Grace Transforms. Or to put it another way, this grace is free, unconditional, but not cheap. Not without expectations or obligations. Unconditioned, but not unconditional. Unconditioned in the giving, but not unconditional in the gift. God gives freely, but expects something in return. He does not give no strings attached. If I can jump to the text for the sermon in two weeks' time... Titus 2.14, the purpose of the appearance of God's grace in Christ is, quote, he gave us himself for us to redeem us, to, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's the purpose of God's free gift. A people that are his very own, eager to do, to do what is good. Now, this is where a comparison between our time and Paul's world is again instructive. When I say that God gives his grace freely and not with, any, and not with no strings attached, but with obligations, you might have felt a bit uneasy. There's something about this idea that doesn't fit too well with us. It's this. In our culture, we think the highest form of a gift is one that is given with no strings attached. To us, that's pure gift, given with no expectations. That's, that's, that's pure altruism. 
to us to give something with expectation of something in return is, to be frank, a lesser motivation. Surely we might think God's gift of free grace should be the same. Otherwise, it's not real grace. If that's our thinking, then I'm afraid we're labouring under a misconception. Why our ideal of a pure gift may seem obvious to us, in fact, it is the construct of a specific historical and cultural configuration, an invention of the modern West. And it's only a few hundred years old. John Barclay, who I mentioned a moment ago, argues that in Paul's day, and in most of the world still today, gift-giving was not no strings attached, but had the expectation of reciprocity, of back and forth, in order to foster mutuality by creating or maintaining social bonds. Barclay's second quote on page two, he says, what has seemed to the modern world a paradoxical phenomenon, a free, that a free gift can also be obliging, is entirely comprehensible in ancient terms. And Paul's point here in Titus 2, as elsewhere, is that God's gift, Christ, is obliging, obligates. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live upright, sorry, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. You see the same kind of thing, for example, in, a, in a, perhaps a more well-known part of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, where verses 8 through 10, where you see exactly the same dynamic in different language. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by, it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith, he says, and this is not from yourself, it's the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast, freely given, not to the worthy, and yet the very next sentence, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The free gift of God's grace is obliging, does, does obligate, not by good works but for good works is grace given. Well, what obligations? What obligations does it give? We must put aside, in other words, our Western invention of the pure gift and attend to the free grace of God which creates obligations in those who receive it. What obligations? Well, let's look at our text a little more closely, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God is instructive, as we've seen. But what does it teach? Two things, to say no on one hand and to live lives on the other. That is, to renounce certain things and live a different quality of life. Let's look at each. That which grace teaches us to say no to are ungodliness and worldly passions. They're general terms, but have in common the notions of that which is out of control, disordered, in particular not ordered towards God, say no to ungodliness and to, to passions, desires and obsessions of this world, Paul describes in those general terms. But it's not just to avoid or regret these things that 
but to say no to them. That's not a bad translation of our NIV, of the underlying Greek word, which means to renounce. The grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I think that's an important word to notice. Many years ago, Peter Adam, who was the vicar, then the vicar of St. Jude's Carlton in Melbourne, made a compelling point to me about the issue of repentance. He told me that it's not enough to regret going wrong. What you need to do is to renounce it. Say no to it, in other words. That's very different. And this came home to me some time later when a distressed couple came to see me, a distressed married couple came to see me. The man had admitted to adultery with a fellow worker. And he regretted very much the pain he'd caused his wife. They were both very upset. But remembering what Peter Adam had said to me, I, I asked the man, yes, but do you renounce the relationship? He paused. I knew I was losing him. And as it was so, he left our meeting having turned his back effectively upon his wife and the Lord Jesus Christ, who he knew he was openly, openly defying. Regret is not renunciation. John Chrysostom, the great 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople, commenting on this very verse of Titus 2.12, makes the same point, only he has the word denying in his translation. He said, this is the third quote on page 2, See here the foundation of all virtue. He has not said avoiding, but denying. Denying implies the greatest difference, the greatest hatred and aversion. But saying no is not enough, renouncing is not enough, there needs to be a replacement. Not just renounce, but replace with something else. And here, that something else is to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Three things there. Self-controlled. And the word here means soundness of mind, sobriety, being, have your act together in your head. You're that kind of person. Intentional. Upright is the word that meets translated um, just or righteous, perhaps. And the word godly means reverently or piously. And if self-control is about really yourself, and upright is about, in a sense, how you relate to others, godly or is a word it's about how you relate to the divine, reverencing God. And that's what grace teaches us, to live like that. Sound mind, lives, lives of uprightness, pious relationship to God. Now, these words of Paul are not written just generally. They're written to a particular situation. Paul has left his delegate Titus on the island of Crete and giving him the task of orienting the very fresh Christian community there. He's instructing Titus on what to teach and to model this rather new Christian community. As I mentioned last week, the situation is that the people of Crete, like most people of the first century Mediterranean world, greeted the emergence of Christians with fear and suspicion over what looked awfully like a weird, dangerous cult. Dangerous because these new believers stopped the normal worship 
of the gods. And that risks the safety of the whole community. Don't worship the gods. Gods, who knows what will happen, what they might do. Christians were regarded the way we may today regard perhaps a strange, extreme anti-vaxxer group today. And Paul is very concerned that the believers, that the, that the Christian community on Crete do all they can to allay this fear and distrust by living lives that are commendable in the eyes of their hostile neighbours. And it's that need to be commendable in the eyes of their neighbours that, that shapes Paul's description of the, our self-controlled, upright and godly lives that grace teaches them to live. The kind of virtues that first century Greco-Roman world would themselves esteem. You see this in the material that comes in, to, in Titus 2, verse 1 through 10, where all the instructions are laid out. What Titus is to, is to speak to the various segments in the community, the older men, the older women, who themselves are to teach the younger women, the young men, whom Titus is to lead by example, and even enslaved people. Yes, Greco-Roman society in the first century was a slave society. And Paul's emphasis on what's commendable reflects his culture, but also what I might imagine the perceived vulnerabilities of each sect sector, sector. Now I know that our society is very different in so many ways. Some good, some bad, not so good, from the one that, in which Paul and Titus lived. But despite this, there's still a great deal in what Titus is to teach and model that we too can learn about in our culture as we live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Let me go through briefly what, what Paul encourages. Verse 2. Teach the older men... You ready, older men? ..to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. I think that does translate probably directly across. Now, the older women, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Makes you wonder about the older women in Crete. <laughs> or perhaps the vulnerabilities of elder women in Crete. <laughs> and so on. Well, young men, verse eight, 6, this I think can still apply today too. Encourage young men to be self-controlled, not hot-headed, about mature in their, in their living. In fact, Titus himself is to model that, verse 7. In everything, Paul says, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And even the slaves, even the enslaved, are to do all they can to prove themselves reliable and trustworthy to their masters, so that, Paul writes, in every way, they'll make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Now, you may say there are other things that you might talk about in Christian virtue, but these are the ones that Paul particularly has in mind in that context. It's what the grace of God teaches us as we say no to ungodliness 
and worldly passion and live self-controlled, upright lives, godly lives in the present age. Which leads me to finally address a question to each of you as a result of all this. I guess it's a question in two parts. The question is, have you received the grace of God in Christ? That's talked about here. I say that because in every congregation, I hope, there are people on the journey still and exploring Christ. And maybe today is a day in which it's time to stop exploring and find, or rather be found. If the answer is yes, the second question is, have you been taught by grace? That is, it must make a difference to you in some way, to your habits, your behaviours, your ideas and emotions. If you're untouched entirely, then I wonder whether, in fact, we're talking about the grace of God at all. It's not just about insurance when you die. I know I'm going, yes, not, not grace of God at all. Now, there are some traps here because when I ask that, those questions, it's because some of us are all too aware of our weaknesses and shortcomings and therefore too easily become discouraged by such a question. They need to remember the free grace of God in Christ. I didn't ask you whether you're perfect. Others might take things too lightly, complacently if you like. They need to remember the free grace of God may be unconditional, sorry, unconditioned, but it's not unconditional, it's obligating. And for them, this question should be a wake-up call. Christ welcomes all who come to him. But in coming to him, you're coming to a grace that transforms.